Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University. Today, we are with Carlo Di Politi, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Rome, La Sapienza. We will be talking about his book published in 2020 by Routledge. This is Democratizing the Economics Debate. Welcome, Carlo. Uh, hi, Andrea, and thanks for inviting me. Thanks for your time, Carlo. Please tell us about the origin of this book and tell us something about yourself, your current affiliation, your research interest, what you do. Uh, well, as you said, I'm an associate professor of economics at Sapienza University, and I'm the editor of the PSL Quarterly Review and Moneta Credito, uh, two um, open access journals, uh, academic journals in economics. <clears throat> and actually, I was asked to, to write this book. So basically, um, the Academia del Lincei, which is the Italian Science Academy, has a biannual prize for early career researchers, Italian, uh, not Italy-based, but really Italian researchers, unfortunately, I would say. Anyway, they uh, decided three or four years ago that they would ask to the prize winners also to write a monograph, and, uh, and, and, the, and they could choose between uh, writing about their own you know, narrow specialization or a more, um, I would I would say, um, optimistic book about uh, one's outlook concerning their own discipline. I've decided to write this second kind of book, so it is really a personal perspective on this current state of economics. Um, I was a little afraid at first because I thought it could be perceived as something arrogant, but in the end I also thought that, you know, Early career researchers can have something to contribute. We have a slightly different perspective for more, um, you know, established senior researchers. So I thought, why not? Let's try it. And then I hope people will like it. Yeah, we'll come to this uh, because, in fact, we could define this book as a kind of manifesto and we will see this through our conversation. Um, I forgot to mention that uh, um, we have been ready with you on this podcast when we presented another book of yours, uh, Classical Economics Today, Essays in Honor of Alessandro Caglia, but also uh, I would like to mention your uh, other book, The Routledge Handbook of Heterodox Economics. Uh, but today we are talking about this book, which is about 100 pages long. It is divided into three parts. The first one is how economics should be. The second is what economics is. And the third is what economics could be. So it's a big manifesto. It's a big, it's a big challenge. Let's start with defining uh, why uh, we are talking about the debate, uh, what this debate is about, and is this, is this debate common also in other social sciences? Uh, 
Well, the idea of seeing um, the scientific progress as a debate, uh, I would say yes, it, it's quite common in the social sciences. In my specific case, this is really coming from a history of economic thought perspective. Uh, but it is true that, you know, in several other disciplines, I'm thinking of uh, sociology, political science, or international relations. It would be normal, for example, to teach uh, especially, you know, uh, from the very from the very start, from undergraduate level, to teach in a way that is possibly historically uh, inspired and that shows the alternance of views over time, really in a debate between scholars. So, in this sense, economics is a little peculiar for its decision not to teach this way and instead to present the discipline as a set of. Uh, abstract principles that are given and, in a sense, they are considered true uh, almost by definition, I would say. And you attribute to this failed opportunity of a debate the fact that, for example, more than a decade after the great financial crisis, we do not have signs of significant changes in the discipline. And um, why is this the case? So to be honest, this is one of the of the points in which, as I mentioned, it's my own personal perspective. So it really depends on what do you consider to be a significant change uh, in the theory. So now we are still uh, grasping with the consequences of the coronavirus. So maybe it already feels uh, very far back in time, but until you know little more than one year ago we in some european countries especially for example italy and greece we still did not recover the level of gdp that we had in 2007 so uh, really there has been this enormous crisis around 2008 that has been not just an economic crisis in the sense of you know for the economy it has also been a crisis for the economic science because not only, um, you know, it was difficult to explain why the, the crisis emerged using the traditional models. Actually, the, the so-called mainstream models were built in a way that they would imply that a crisis was impossible. So really, there has been a huge problem there. And for a few years, there has been a sort of a state of confusion. But my own personal uh, opinion, and, and I'd like to know what you think about it, or also uh, our listeners, is that even this confusion, this debate, having a heavy criticism, so for example, the famous uh, Queen's question, in, uh, did not produce very significant change in the sense that even the innovations in economic theory that has taken place, you know, in the past few years, they are not as radical as, for example, uh, being able to explain the sort of huge crisis that we had in 2008 or, or the subsequent euro crisis, for the matter. So it is not significant in the sense that some new models did emerge. For example, you now have these very fashionable hunk models, so uh, heterogeneous agents with new Keynesian but still they are not, you know, the sort of radical innovation that would be needed given the extent of, you know, the problematic state of economics after 2008. 
By the way, I forgot to say that this book is not only very interesting, but also that everybody can enjoy it. So this is a book for colleagues, for economists, for students of economics, but it is also a book accessible to everybody else. And since this is the case, maybe we can ask you to define what do we mean with mainstream, heterodox, and pluralist approaches in economics. Yeah, so we mentioned about uh, huge problems for the economics profession after 2008. Uh, and we can also, uh, you know, briefly recall uh, a number of even protests uh, against, um, against economics teaching. Uh, you can think of um, rethink the rethinking economics movement in the UK or the post-autistic uh, movement in France. Uh, there were protests against the sort of economic policy that uh, many, if not all, but several economists were pushing for. So you can think of the Occupy Wall Street movement, for example, or the Ignados in France. Now, the point is, uh, in the face of criticism, very often uh, many colleagues would, an would answer, oh, but you have a very biased view of what is economics. This is not really the frontier of research. You're thinking about the sort of stuff that we teach only in the very uh, first year, but then we recognize that things are more complicated and so on. So basically, we, uh, we were in a situation in which every time people wanted to criticize economic theory for assuming, I don't know, uh, a certain unrealistic uh, hypothesis, be it uh, perfect rationality or full certainty or um, people always having uh, perfectly exact uh, expectations and so on, there would always be a, an answer of somebody saying, uh, oh, no, but this is not true. The true economists or the very good ones don't assume these unrealistic uh, assumptions and the body of economic theory has progressed. Now, uh, in order to face this counter-argument, what I try to do in the book is to put forward this idea that mainstream economics is not necessarily a coherent uh, body of theory, rather uh, it's a sort of a, a game in the sense of Wittgenstein, sorry for the uh, citation. What I mean is it's a set of uh, sometimes uh, disconnected methods or assumptions that share some family resemblance, and we can talk about that if you want, but they do not necessarily always exhibit exactly you know, the same elements. So what is this family resemblance? In the end, uh, it is the idea, it is the general vision of uh, the economy as if it was a marketplace, so a specific point in time and space where supply and demand meet, and the presumption that in general this sort of social organization works well. Then, of course, you have internal differences, but more or less that would be uh, a general idea of how could you could think of mainstream economics. So uh, economists typically uh, think of everything as if it was a market, you know, from policy. So they would argue that uh, parties are selling something to voters or within the family. 
there are very many models of bargaining and you know really a supply and demand uh, within the family and so on any social topic can be approached in this way that i try to call, i mean to to argue that it can be called mainstream economics it's not necessarily a consistent and you know closed set of theories but it's clearly recognized so maybe it is difficult to de to, to define it but you clearly understand what it is when you see it sorry this was a difficult question that required a long answer and if if you want a bigger answer you can still buy your routledge handbook of heterodox economics by the way Uh, that you edited with uh, Taijo Linchester and Linchester. Uh, but now to move on, I would like to read a quote from Keynes that you got at the beginning of the book about the social relevance of economics and economists in particular. So Keynes wrote, the ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than it is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. So this is how economics and economists are important. And this is where you introduce the issue of why pluralism and plurality are necessary, are crucial, in particular with the discipline, which is, um, well, where objectivity is impossible as you write somewhere. So uh, economists and experts in general must be accountable. The, to, to some extent, this is the, the starting point of your, of your book. <laughs> It is. And I think um, the, 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 the quote that you, that you just cited uh, is meant to imply that even, you know, everybody, citizens, even those that really think that they hate uh, this subject should be at least a little bit concerned about uh, the economic debate. Maybe not everybody can be, you know, directly involved in the debate, but there has to be a sort of uh, trust relation between those that are discussing about economic policy and those who will have you know, one way or, or the other to suffer the consequences of this debate. Because the point is economists uh, very, very, very often have uh, a strong role in the political debate uh, that people like it or not. And therefore, mm, it is a general concern that, that, you know, the economic debate really is in a sense democratic. I'm sorry, what I currently think is the economic debate in many countries today is not really fully democratic. And this is a problem, you know, for economic policy, but also for democracy more in general. Well, maybe now I can add another quote. This is not Keynes, 1936. It is a more contemporary and a different intellectual level. This is Michael Gove, former Secretary of State for Justice. At that point, he said people of this country have had enough of experts from organizations with acronyms saying they know what is best and getting it consistently wrong. So this was the apex of populism in Britain when part, part of the, the, the Brexit referendum uh, was won also um, through an actual 
explicit refuse, refusal of uh, the, the, the recommendations of the experts from the central bank to to basically virtually any other organization based on on knowledge and expertise. So uh, was Gov uh, right to say that people are uh, tired and they had enough of experts since you are stating that uh, uh, talking about economics experts, there is not enough debate to make sure that what uh, those experts are recommending, are recommending is correct? Well, uh, I, I don't wish to single out any specific individual. In general, it's true that uh, there is an asymmetry. Experts clearly have an advantage when they are discussing about their own discipline, uh, and this advantage is the sheer fact that they do they know more. Um, everyday citizens cannot debate about economic policy with the same level of expertise, of knowledge, uh, with the same set of tools and arguments of an economist. But as I said, still citizens will have to suffer, you know, the consequences of uh, economic policy choices. So uh, there has to be a trust relation and or, or an accountability, uh, as you said before. And the problem is that currently, it is very much the case in, in several countries for the reason that, uh, I, I mean, for many reasons, one of which is uh, the specific ways in, re, in which uh, academia is organized in many countries. And maybe we can talk about it later. But anyway, uh, the debate currently is such that there is an enormous uh, difference in access to uh, what are considered to be the leading journals, opportunities to publish, or career opportunities being hired, being promoted between economists who have very specific worldviews, so mainstream economists in the sense that I was referring before, and those who instead are strongly critical of the mainstream, that you can talk heterodox economists if you wish, but this is also true for um, a larger set of social scientists. In, indeed, many other uh, social sciences are not really happy about what they call economic imperialism and the tendency of economists to try and teach everybody else what they think is right and not listening to anybody else's uh, opinion. As I said, I think there are many reasons for this current state of affairs, uh, but still it is a problem. And so it should be uh, a social point of concern in general for, you know, as a, um, as a pillar of democracy in, in many countries, that the economic debate be better um, even policed, I was about to say, be, you know, better uh, I, I mean, citizens should ensure that the academic and not only the economic community does a good job in really discussing all points of view and not excluding any specific point of view just out of prejudice. Okay, let's go to the subtitle of your book, which yeah. is uh, Pluralism and Research Evaluation. So uh, what's the link between research evaluation and pluralism? And uh, we go here to the causes and the possible solutions of um, making sure that this debate works better. Well, so, um, you know, it, it is a very... Um, 
a very well-known quote from physicist Max Planck that science uh, proceeds one funeral at a time by which uh, he meant that it's very difficult to convince somebody, especially, you know, the well-established colleagues. They have studied for many decades and they have invested a lot in a certain theory. It is difficult to convince people that they are wrong and that they should possibly change their mind. So already, you know, more now than a hundred years ago, it was suggested that possibly the best way to see uh, progress in science is by investing on the new generations. Yet, uh, even though this is, so it is a, if you want, uh, a relatively common problem also for other disciplines, and uh, it is a, a long-standing problem, as I said, I think it is more special, or at least it has, you know, peculiar characteristics for economics, and uh, the more we are, we are approaching to recent times. On the one hand, because the way we do research is changing, so if you want, uh, today we have increasingly less importance of single individuals and increasingly more importance of places and especially of funding organizations and, you know, sources of revenue for for, uh, universities or for uh, research institutions. And on the other hand, uh, economics, because of how close it is for political part, for, for political, um, yeah, policymakers in general, let me say it is possibly more liable to uh, additional peculiar problems, such as, for example, conflicts of, of interest or. Um, even ideological bias. So it is. It is a well-known problem. Uh, it is a well-known problem. The difficulty, you know, to pro- to observe radical change within a certain discipline. But as time goes on, it is becoming more problematic in economics and more problematic over time. This is for a number of reasons. I have just uh, very briefly mentioned a couple, and those who are interested can see in the book. But what I really focus uh, in the book is, you know, singling out one of these reasons, which is research evaluation. I think uh, this is a very, you know, technical uh, aspect, but it's very important. Um, The way that uh, researchers are evaluated, the way that certain decisions, for example, about which projects to finance or who to hire are really crucial to understand how does the scientific debate in a certain field develop over time. In your book, there are two maps uh, about uh, uh, how even more rare heterodox economics are becoming, uh, particularly in some parts of the world. And then you mention how a limited number of journals uh, represent a threat to pluralism uh, because of the way they treat contributions coming from other schools and other um, approaches. Um, so are you against evolutionary research or are you able to uh, support uh, an alternative way of measuring and evaluating research? So one of the, uh, what I think, you know, is an interesting funding that I was not expecting before I started uh, writing the book is the uh, 
well, I, I was expecting that there was, uh, I knew that there is a, a very large supply of publications uh, in economics, but I wasn't expecting it to be this large. That is to say, according to some computations that, that I make there, you can see more than 30,000 unique new papers are added online every year. And I assume that most people cannot read 30,000 papers even, you know, in a, during a career, in a lifetime. So there really is a problem of a publications glut, if you want. Really, really an oversupply of economics publications. In the face of this oversupply, it has become increasingly accepted or a social practice, if you want. Uh, it is considered you know, um, even normal to evaluate a researcher without reading what they have written. So it is increasingly assumed, especially in economics, that you can just read uh, the name of the journal on which something is published, and then you can assume this is by itself, you know, a proof of the quality of the article and therefore of the person, and sometimes even therefore of the research institution in which the person works. Now, what I object is this trickling down uh, of the evaluation. So we start from uh, having journal rankings, which is already problematic per se, and then we attribute the ranking of the journal to the specific article, and then we attribute you know, the quality rating of the article to the person. I think that's really too much. Uh, if you really want to know if a piece of research it's interesting, you know, it has a, a good quality, even uh, it was fashionable to talk about excellence back then, then I think you should read it. So to answer, you know, more synthetically to your question, I'm not against research evaluation. I understand that, for example, if you must hire one person and you must choose between 10 candidates, you must evaluate their research. I'm just against, you know, simplistic and biased methods. They try to uh, prevent doing what I'm sorry must be done. So in this, in this case, for example, reading at least a sample of the candidates' publications. Yeah, this is the experience of everybody uh, doing our job, uh, at least uh, um, yes, here in the UK, clearly. The prevalence of the name of the journal and uh, the importance of the classification, the rankings, and um, <laughs> but it's not particularly important what you actually wrote in the paper. This, this is a common experience today. Um, may I move to one possible consequence of uh, um, what you describe? Um, you refer to the risk and the threat that disciplines will eventually uh, separate into something different if it, is, if it proves impossible to cohabitate in the same, in the same uh, disciplinary uh, environment. So is this happening already elsewhere and would you consider it a positive or a negative development? Well, so uh, the, the, the problem with journal rankings that I was mentioning before is common to several disciplines. Of course, it's not just about economics. However, economics is special in the sense that, for example, the so-called top journals are all, or yeah, they are all based uh, in the US. 
editors and in general editorial boards of these journals are all uh, affiliated to top US institutions and even the authors are to an enormous uh, percentage affiliated just to the top US institutions. So there really is a lack of debate and not, and this in a sense, I mean, at least from some points of view, uh, has very concrete consequences for the lives uh, of researchers who, for example, must publish somewhere if they have, you know, to get a promotion or to be hired. So what you have is a a current, um, you know, problematic choice among people who are not affiliated in the top U.S. institutions and who probably would share slightly different views, you have a choice in two terms. Either they decide to play the game, to try and look like uh, people who are in the top institutions, and they uh, at least aim for you know, mid-range uh, rankings. And this happens a lot. Uh, especially um, especially in, in, in European countries, but not only, and especially because of the formal constraints, again, of research evaluation schemes in several countries um, that are, you know, often uh, imposing, for example, quantitative uh, minimum standards on researchers. On the other hand, you have a second option, and and this other option is just giving up on the economics label and finding a niche in other cognate disciplines, or even try and creating a new one. So for example, in the book, I talk uh, a little bit about the French experience in which in protest, to the fact that they were always seeing themselves uh, damaged, or at least that's how they perceived the situation. Uh, you know, um, heterodox economists had tried to create a new discipline that they would call social economics rather than just uh, economics, in order not to be evaluated by the economists and with the economists. This is not just a French uh, experience. If you think, for example, of the UK, it is very common there, or in general of Anglo-Saxon countries, it is very common there that you have uh, those economists that do not fully share the mainstream, often employed in business schools or in departments of geography, of business, of um, political science or sociology. So uh, people try and, uh, in a sense, escape from the tyranny of mainstream economics. And this is a real risk. I think uh, in in a few years, one, two decades, I don't know. I mean, of course, nobody can know. But in the foreseeable future, if the practice of research evaluation remains what it currently is, that is to say, uh, the imperative is to publish on a very narrow set of US-dominated journals and only those, then an increasing number of, of people, of researchers, I think, could really be tempted to break out and, you know, create their own new environment. I'm not sure about what would be the social consequences of this, what would imply 
to have, if you want, you know, to put it in, in economic policy terms, a rather more market-oriented uh, discipline on the, on the one hand and possibly a more critical uh, discipline on the other hand. This is not necessarily uh, a development that I would personally welcome, for example. I still hope... Uh, I still think that there should be uh, a debate, uh, even among all social sciences, not just within economics, uh, and it should be possibly a, a same debate. People should learn to listen and to talk with each other rather than, you know, finding your niece and remain uh, constrained in your uh, little uh, bubble. But if it becomes impossible to, you know, follow, push a career in academia or publish or have a say, uh, given the current structures, then I'm afraid it could become, an, uh, you know, inevitable. Uh, that's very interesting. So uh, it is true that the polarization has already happened. And so we have uh, this separation through affiliations at different types of departments and schools. And one might say the losers are here, the winners are there, or as you interpret it, one can say it's already, uh, to some extent, uh, a kind of separation in the uh, disciplinary affiliation and not in the department affiliation. Um, I would like to go to my last question, which is about something which is not in the book. What do you think about uh, um, how politicians and policymakers choose their Economist is there as well um, only mainstream or it's a more uh, pluralist plural pluralist uh, environment? What do you think? So, um, uh, one of the uh, important points uh, on which I think mainstream economics are right is that uh, it would be unfair and incorrect to accuse all mainstream economists of just being neoliberal and all uh, proposing the very same set of policies. There is a debate even among uh, mainstream economists on economic policies, specific uh, measures you know, to be tested and, and applied and so on. And I would say from that point of view, there is a plurality of different uh, perspectives or opinions, even within the mainstream. And the situation is such that currently, I think, basically policymakers can pick those uh, consultants or those economists that, that, you know, that they are proposing at that point some policy measures that the policymaker wanted to enact anyway, and they could use the economist's expertise, you know, as a sort of legitimation. Now, um, it is also true, however, that there is some sort of structural imbalance in the sense that, uh, especially during the 90s, if you want, um, the, those perspectives that are more critical uh, of capitalism has re have really lost uh, space in academia after the fall of the Berlin Wall for very, you know, uh, very interesting reasons, but, you know, even plausible ones from, from some points of view. And both parties from the left and the right have 
started picking from the same set of economists. So uh, I think there has been, if you want, uh, a strong demand side effect uh, in producing that unilaterality of the debate that I was mentioning uh, before. So as time goes on, my perception is that the dominance of mainstream economics has increased. In the book, I focus on research evaluation as one explanation for this trend. But if that was uh, what you were thinking at, so if you think that also uh, demand for a certain economic theory from policymakers could also be a factor, yes, then I agree with you. Uh, there has been more demand for certain kind of economic theories for a while, and this necessarily has produced, you know, more supply, if you want. So uh, it has been naturally uh, easier to find uh, money to hire people to create research centers if you were proposing certain sets of policies than others. So I think uh, this, this, this aspect, you know, the demand for economics, uh, for economists and for economics, um, especially in the past few decades, has not really been studied, uh, you know, comprehensively so far. And it's a terribly interesting topic. So thanks for asking. And let's, let's of course, uh, work a lot more on that. Thank you very much, Carlo. We spoke with Professor Carlo Di Politi about his recent book published by Routledge. This is Democratizing the Economics Debate, Pluralism and Research Evaluation. Thank you for your time. Thank you.